Paradise in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. National Lampoon's Animal House, featuring John Belushi, opened on July 28, 1978. Hello and welcome to SN Hell. My name is Keith. With me as always, my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hey, Keith. Special episode. This is a special episode. It's a very special episode. It's one we've been kind of talking about and building for really three, you know, three seasons of the show. Yeah, we kind of waiting. It's like the first, it's the first of its kind to come around based on yeah. the, you know, somebody from the show crossing over, if you will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Lorraine had done American Hot Wax. Uh, Garrett had done Cooley High before even getting on the show. But this one is kind of, this was big. This was big. So for folks that are finding us for the first time, we are two guys who are going through Saturday Night Live episode by episode, starting with season one. We are just about to jump in and start doing season four. As Animal House came out in July of 78 between seasons three and four, we got to take a, a minor pause here and, and watch this classic comedy. I think uh, the, I, I think there's a couple of others as we go that we should watch. Uh, I, I know yep. there's a couple that jump out at me. Certainly the ones that are directly sketches, for goodness sake. Yeah, that brings me to my first point. You have never seen Animal House prior to this viewing, correct? Correct. You knew the lore, though, right? You knew you weren't expecting a zoo or something. (laughs) (laughs) No, not actual animals. I uh, no, I knew like it was the the Belushi movie, the the movie he was most remembered for. I knew Mm -hmm. uh, the toga party and food fights. And that's about it, though. I have seen the I last saw this. I, oddly enough, it was in 2006 and it was the night after my closing sort of class party um, in college. So I kind of watched Animal House the day after I finished university. Um, the last time I'd seen it a few times, I had seen television cuts, which for those of you who are young, um, <laughs> do you remember like ASN movies, Matt? Like even Dam would be blurred out or uh, <laughs> of course yeah yeah asn's movie matinee or midnight feature or whatever yeah they were yeah there. yeah yeah heavily censored um i had seen that a few times as a child um but this is my uh, first time since 2006 seeing the movie um and it, it's been a good break because it was kind of like watching a new movie so yeah this movie directed by john landis i know you can't stand john landis i think john landis is human shit yes correct Yes, I, I have for the death of children. Fuck that guy. And he took no responsibility yeah, that we're talking about the Twilight Zone situation yes. involving uh, Vic Morrow, who, who passed away as well. A, a helicopter fell on top of him, correct? Yes, right on top of them and chopped them all to bits. Terrible. Yeah, um, I've only I, I've not looked into that. I've, I've seen interviews with John Landis. He strikes me as someone who can be a bit much. Um, however, I do enjoy <laughs> some of his films. <laughs> Movie written by Harold Ramis. Uh, our generation certainly remember him best as Egon Spengler from the Ghostbusters movies. Um, however, Ramis, prior to that, uh, performer writer uh, with a, a Second City background, uh, he was the head writer on the first season of SCTV. Goes on to write Caddyshack, uh, co-writes Ghostbusters, directs uh, Groundhog Day. You know, really goes on to do a lot and had done a lot prior to that. Yeah, I was kind of actually, when I saw Ivan Reitman's name uh, come by in the credits, I was like, oh, wow, you know, you got uh, Belushi and Reitman. And then I was kind of thinking about Ghostbusters and how Belushi might have been in Ghostbusters. And then I was like, oh, this is kind of like Harold Ramis' crew. And then his name came up and I was like, oh, shit, there he is. (laughs) Um, all this movie is also written by Doug Kenny, a name that is tragically underknown and underappreciated today. Founder of the National Lampoon magazine, a real powerhouse for his short time on this earth, setting the tone for what comedy would be in the 70s. Um, and uh, Chris Miller, who was also a writer at uh, National Lampoon magazine. Uh, the original idea for this was to do a film with Charles Manson in high school called Laser Orgy Girls, I believe. Ooh, that's a Roger yeah. Corman title. 
This movie has a stellar cast. It's starring a ton of people. A lot of them went on to be well-known for other roles um, or uh, just to be journeyman actors. It is best remembered uh, for Saturday Night Live's John Belushi. He was not the star of the film, but he was definitely the breakout character. And the film becomes the highlight of uh, Belushi's career. I mean, some will say Blues Brothers was the better movie or the more popular movie, and it certainly was popular. But I think if people were to name the Belushi movie, it's it's not going to be Blues Brothers. It's not going to be, you know, Continental Divide or, <laughs> or Neighbors <laughs> or any of his other works, no, you know. They'll think of him in the college sweater. For sure. Yeah. A gift from his younger brother, as a matter of fact. So uh, just a bit about the magazine, National Lampoon Magazine. It's spun off from the Harvard Magazine, uh, founded by Doug Kenny, uh, Henry Beard, and Robert Hoffman. Very popular with the uh, new generation, the college kids, because it satirized pretty much everything. Some fans will get angry at me saying this, but it was mad for Mad Magazine for college kids. Pulled very few punches and was just as likely to poke fun at the left as it was the right. It would tear down the establishment, make fun of anti-establishment people while it was doing it. You know, a lot of magazines over the years have copied the style, but none have had anywhere near the print success of the National Lampoon. Um, It eventually spun into a radio show and a live stage show. I mean, we missed this because of our ages, Matt, but what a what a treat to have this weird, satirical, dark magazine and a radio show with all these people, you know, mocking society. I, I can't imagine how awesome that would have been at the time, you know. It sounds like a lot of fun, yeah. And, uh, and I mean, I've never, I've never seen it. I've never read it. You know, I read about it a little online getting ready for this, but my only comparison, yeah, is, as you said, kind of like Mad Magazine. Uh, I didn't know it had quite so many branches, like a radio show and shit like mm-hmm. that. You know, it always kind of struck me as uh, like, you know, oh, if it's National Lampoons, it's going to be good uh, until the 90s when it really just seemed to be on a lot of uh, teen sex romps. <laughs> Class trip, wasn't it? Or Yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So the radio show and the stage show featured really most of the original cast of Saturday Night Live. The radio show uh, had them all except Garrett and Jane and Lorraine, but Lorraine did wind up wind, wind up doing some a few bits after she was cast in SNL. Um, but yeah, Garrett and Jane were the only two from that whole crew not there as well. Like Bill Murray was a part of it. Brian Doyle Murray was a part of it. I said Harold Ramis, but uh also, writers like Michael O'Donohue and Ann Beats came from the National Lampoon. Did, was Conan O'Brien involved? Harvard Lampoon, yeah. that different? or uh, National spun off from Harvard. Um, a lot of SNL writers, I think to this day, were uh, Harvard Lampoon writers. That's pretty yeah. neat. But yeah, quite a, quite a pedigree, nevertheless. Same idea, yeah, for sure. Doug Kenny, uh, co-founder of National Lampoon, they, uh, they met with Harold Ramis and they started talking about, the, I think it was actually Ivan Reitman's uh, suggestion that they start talking about making a show from the sketches or making a film from the sketches in the stage show. Um, and that's where the whole layers, lay, laser orgy girls came about. Ivan Reitman had wanted to direct, but uh, he had no experience, so they wouldn't let them. Uh, John Landis came in because he was kind of a fan of the cast in the show, but he'd also directed the Kentucky Fried movie for uh, the Zucker, you know, Zucker, Abrams Zucker. They did Airplane and all that sort of stuff. Now, Kentucky Fried movie is more like sketches, like a through line plot, I guess, than this is. Is it funny? Parts of it are hilarious. Mr. Mike's Mondo video is is very similar to Kentucky Fried movie, and that'll be another one we're going to watch soon. So uh, the sketch, uh, sorry, the script was being written. The original, some original ideas when this was scrapped is up to debate. Original ideas for the cast members were Chevy Chase's Otter, Dan Aykroyd as D-Day, Bill Murray or Harold Ramis as Boone, and Brian Doyle Murray as Hoover. Now, both John Landis and the studio were less enthused by filling it with unknown comedians and essentially a click of the National Lampoon slash Saturday Night Live gang. So they uh, they were hesitant to to follow this casting, these casting suggestions. Uh, Landis has said later that it was because Ramis was too old. But I mean, most of these actors are too old. So I don't know how seriously that's like yeah. Yeah, these kids don't look like they're in college. They don't look like kids. Mm-hmm. No, I think the only one that really passes is uh, is Tom Hulse playing Pinto. 
he's the only one that passes for the age of the Delta chapter. You know, some of them were in their 30s and stuff. Uh, Chevy Chase was really being uh, considered for Otter, though. But um, there's a great story in the 40th anniversary book where they said, well, Chevy, if you make foul play, you're the lead. But if you play Otter, you're only going to be part of an ensemble. So Chevy jumped at foul play instead and has regretted it ever since. Classic Chevy. A man of many regrets. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd was um, either not interested because he, uh, he he allegedly wanted to stick around and really keep SNL afloat and, and not work double duty. Um, but there's also a, a story that Lauren Michaels said if Aykroyd goes to do the movie, he's going to have to fire him and possibly Belushi as well. Where the truth lies there is uh, is is up for debate, I suppose. But the uh, the cast was mainly filled with like a mix of industry vets like Donald Sutherland and Tim Matheson, and then we have like newcomers like Kevin Bacon, Karen Allen, Stephen First, um, and then some folks in the in, in between. And most of the cast really regard the making of this uh, film to be one of the more fun or rewarding experience of their, their professional lives. So that no matter what you think of the movie, that's all it was nice to hear here. You know, I had no idea Karen Allen was in this. If I had known Karen Allen was in this, I'd have watched this years ago. I love Karen. <laughs> here, Allen. here. She is quite fantastic. She really is. Oh my God. She's, I, I mean, I, I would watch friggin' Raiders obsessively. Mm. Uh, with her in it i was excited for the cameo uh she she looks a lot like uh brooke adams who was in invasion of the body snatchers with Donald yep. Sutherland. Mm-hmm. uh but karen allen god love you brooke karen allen has aged like fine wine she is still smoking in her yes. 70s today yeah absolutely the real name for this show, uh, for this movie, is John Belushi, though. The studios, of course, wanted a bigger name, and they were even suggesting uh, casting against type in order to have the star. But Belushi was really everyone's only pick. By the time the film was getting into production, Landis and Ramis and Kenny and Miller were not agreeing on much, but the one thing they were really big on was having Belushi play the role. If Belushi had turned it down, there was only one other choice that could have played Bluto as they intended. Do you know who that was by chance? Oh, let me think. 1978. I give up. Meatloaf. Oh, my God. I never would have guessed Meatloaf. <laughs> well, Meatloaf yeah. actually did work on the show as well, the, the National Lampoon stage show. So <laughs> he oh, was in the family as well. Belushi was paid $35,000, got a modest bonus, putting him at 40000 tying him with the horse for the highest paid actor in the film. Is that for real? That's for real, yeah. As a concession, Belushi gave up his writing credit on Saturday Night Live and would spend Monday through Wednesday in Oregon shooting. And he would go back to uh, New York for SNL from Wednesday through Saturday. And then Sunday, he was back on a plane to Oregon. It's going to burn a fella out. Fortunately, though, he was completely sober during the filming. And his wife, Judith, was with him. For, uh, for a lot of the shooting, which uh, this woman sounds like a saint, really sounds like one of the finest people in the world. She was uh, on set. Um, she helped make the togas with uh, John Landis's wife, Deborah. And Belushi stayed at a different place than the rest of the cast and crew. He apparently stayed at a rented, maybe it was, I've read it was a different hotel, but I've also read it was a rented suburban home. So he would not be around the partying. He took it very seriously, knew it was going to be a big hit, allegedly, and uh, wanted to uh, to put his best foot forward. I mean, good for him. That's pretty cool. He knows what he's like. That takes a lot of uh, determination. So he, yeah, he wanted this to work. And he I did. mean, it did work. So good, good on mm-hmm. him. So the film went on to be a huge hit, not a critical success success at the time, but it has gone on to be a beloved film. I mean, we're talking 40, uh, 45 years later, and it is a beloved film that future generations have gone on to watch and love. Um, It made a bunch of money and it made a whole bunch of lists of like best comedies since the beginning of film. And there's still random screenings everywhere that folks show up for. Let's be frank. I uh, during college, I stayed at home and and lived in my mother's basement. 
went to a college that was 10 minutes away, but you were in the party house at the party university in Eastern Canada. True. I went to the party school, lived in the party house at the party school. Crazy. And I was not, I was not like some frat party guy. I, I you know, I was like into Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails and stuff. So it, it wasn't like I was yelling for the toga party. No, no, but, but you I was saw there. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, and don't get me wrong, you know, it's just it's just like anywhere else. You find your people. Eventually you're you're there long enough. And I stayed there a while, man. I was there for four years. Not not a lot of people make the the, the whole four year run. From what I've heard, most can only handle two, but for you to make it four, that's pretty impressive. I chalk it up to being an only child. Like having people around all the time was I found soothing in a way other people might not. Mm-hmm. Because I went to visit you once, and I mean, it was a zoo. It was a real animal house. <laughs> I mean, yes, that wasn't the norm, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, how could, like, how could it not be fun? I'm like 19, 20. Look at where I live. It was awesome. Yeah. The real story of this film to me is its impact on comedy. Um, it inspired a lot of people to make movies like this. Some are good. Most are shitty. I sort of see this as the first 80s comedy, though it did come out in 78. In the in the 70s, there was not a lot of accessible comedy at the time uh, in film. Uh, you know, like people talk about the 70s as this wonderful era of filmmaking, but wasn't so good for the laugh out loud funny. The funny you did find would be buried in other genres. You'd have like a dark comedy like like MASH or, um, you know, there's funny stuff in Star Wars, funny stuff in like Network. But in the U.S., you had Mel Brooks and you had Woody Allen and you had like a smattering of other stuff. Animal House kind of changes this as studios began to start looking for the next one. And we would get things like Caddyshack and Police Academy and Revenge of the Nerds and Porkies and Meatballs, you know, coming over the next few years. I forgot about Porkies. Oh, Oh, Porky's. <laughs> now, Porky's takes this and goes a little farther, right? You know? Yeah. I remember the VHS box. I think it was for Porky's, too. There was a big face smoking a cigar. And, mm-hmm. like, the kids were in his fingers or something. Uh, but you're, you, you know what? One thing you said uh, really struck me. This is the first 80s comedy. Yeah, uh, I think so. I agree with that big time. I mean, and I have to, to think that without this, we wouldn't have gotten in police academy yeah <laughs> come on we need it but i mean there were also really bad movies that come out of this like far more bad ones they were kind of sex comedies but they were couched in 80s capitalism you know <laughs> you know what i mean yeah i mean the big uh the big one i guess this is not well i guess it depends on what side of the fence you sit on maybe you think it was a good one maybe you think it was a shit one but uh the the uh, revenge of the nerds is the one yep. that really jumped out at me as being direct lineage from this movie. So like from the context of like our show where we're talking Saturday night live, it is animal house that shows that at least one of the SNL players could be a big movie star. You know, Chevy's foul play had opened two weeks before it it did really well. It co-starred Goldie Hawn, but it wasn't the hit and it didn't have the cultural wham that animal house did. So, I mean, I don't think we see things like Ghostbusters or The Jerk or even your Planes, Trains and the Vacation movies necessarily without Animal House being a success, you know? You're right, because it proved that these things can make money. These guys can make money. That's all you need to see sitting behind the desk at the ledger. Yeah, I was just thinking about like when you when you're. When you were talking about 70s comedy, I was like, shit, what is 70s comedy? I thought of The Jerk, and then I thought about Woody Allen. Yeah. I was like, you know, Woody Allen is not like, <laughs> he's not for the dudes, you know? It's not no. to sit around and crack a beer and what are we going to watch? What are we going to watch tonight, Manhattan? A bunch of college, first-year college kids who were half-stoned are not going to go watch Hannah and her sisters. You know what I mean? Get out of here. <laughs> I I just want to recommend a couple of other things if you're interested in more National Lampoon stuff. Drunk Brilliant, or D- Drunk Stoned Brilliant Dead, the story of National Lampoon, great documentary from 2015, and a futile and stupid gesture, uh, both a book and a movie. The movie stars Will Forte. Um, I haven't seen the movie, but I've I've re- I've read the book and uh, thoroughly enjoyed both of those things, giving a little insight into the Lampoon. I I actually think you'd enjoy both, Matt. I've heard of the uh, the latter, but not the former. 
And mm-hmm. yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to check it out because I, I mean I, I I like all these people. I like that stuff. Yeah. And I think you'd enjoy Doug Kenny as well, like the 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 guru, I guess. So Matthew, you ready to jump into the movie? Let's do it. I'm ready. Sure. So I mean, we 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 had talked about different ways of doing this. Going through a whole movie is a different way from us. We we talked. I thought about watch along or something, but I think we're just gonna do a a summary and then we're gonna talk about our favorite bits. And then the last section, we're just going to talk about in the context of Belushi. If you've not listened to us before, Matt and I rarely agree on things. And when we do, it's, it's kind of fun. And also we haven't been enamored with Belushi on during his Saturday night live run. He's had some really great moments, but we're not seeing the love. Before I sat down and started watching all this stuff, it was like, Oh, iconic character, big iconic character, you know, big comedy genius legend. And now that I'm sitting here literally going through his entire body of work almost, uh, at least professionally, successfully, I'm like, okay, you know, it's good. But come on, I I feel a little oversold. You know, I'm not trying to be a ghoul, but when people die, they take on the, you know, people apply the mystique to them when they're dead. That uh, trumps the work a little bit. And and frankly, during season one, we we made the same observation about Gilda that perhaps she is much loved because of her early um, tragic death. However, we have begun to see the love with Gilda, you know. Yeah, I do guess. <laughs> I was gonna say I do get why people would be bummed. That's not quite what I mean. Of course, <laughs> they would be bummed that Gilda Radner dies. But I, I get why there was a connection to her. I guess. And yet Gilda had one of the worst post-Saturday Night Live careers of anyone. Oh, my God. It was wretched. Like, I, I looked at, you know, I, I, yeah, I read her business or whatever. And, yeah, what fucking shit. Just shit movie after shit movie. What happened with her agent or something? I don't know. She was led astray. Somebody who was, whoever was making decisions for her, if it wasn't her, huge mistakes. She should have been a star. And she fizzled hard yeah of, of of all the original cast i mean it took a while for garrett to really bounce back but of all the original cast gilda's post saturday night live even before she got ill was just hideous the only thing i ever knew was haunted honeymoon and that ain't great <laughs> no, not. so let's uh, go to this movie um it takes place at faber college 1962 and uh, notably, John Belushi gets top billing over Tim Matheson. So the story centers around a, the goings-on at uh, Faber College. And it's mainly about a couple of fraternities. Delta, which is kind of a rundown party house with a bad reputation, that's pretty lenient and accepting with its om- admissions. And Omega House, which is the very prestigious and uh, filled with these stuffy rich kid types. So we are we meet two awkward freshmen, Pinto, who is kind of an eager, naive, inexperienced, typical young man who wants to make the most of his college years and Flounder, the socially awkward, chubby kid. So they're rejected from Omega, but they join the Delta House. The students at Delta House are um, Boone. He's sort of an everyman. His his girlfriend, Katie, played by Karen Allen, has sort of matured and she wants him to sort of catch up so he's trying to be a a good boyfriend but also remain a party boy otter is a uber ladies man he's kind of got the slickness of a a high-end salesman we've got hoove who we don't get to see too much of he's a rule following law abiding frat president d-day an enigmatic biker and bluto an almost childlike party slob with a, a deep sense of loyalty to his friends Matt, was it clear early on for you getting to know who everyone was right at the beginning? One of my main, if not the main criticism I have of this movie is I had so much trouble keeping track of and confusing Pinto, Boone and Otter. And I got and eventually I was like. You know what? If I don't know if they were all miscasted, they were just like three dudes with brown hair, and uh-huh. there was something about their presentation. Like I'm sure their characters stood out on paper, but watching this movie, they do not stand out from each other. Uh, Flounder does, of course, because I mean, yeah. look at him for God's sakes—he's got that hat on. But yeah, between Otter, 
uh, Boone and Pinto. It's like the mm-hmm. end of the movie before I'm telling these guys apart. And, <laughs> and, and you know, the, 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 the movie doesn't seem to give, to, you know, they're not applying like tons of depth to these characters other than like a little bit with uh, Karen Allen's boyfriend. But yeah. uh, even that jackass kiss her at the end oh i was wild i was like what the fuck after what she did no way <laughs> oh, i was mad i mean I, I know the actors so that might have made it a little easier like pinto played amadeus in, in amadeus um, um boone was later on the sopranos and uh, otter was tim matheson who's been around i think he's been an act he's been acting since he was like 12 or something just to review like otter otter was going to be chevy boone was either going to be bill murray or um, Harold Ramis and uh, Hoove was going to be Brian Doyle Murray um, in the original. I, I'm kind of glad they didn't go that way. Um, and as much as I enjoyed the performance of this, uh, I can totally see why they wanted Dan Aykroyd for D-Day. Yeah, I mean, Dan Aykroyd would have been awesome <laughs> in this. And he would have really stood out. Like, that's a very distinct uh, character, I think. And I'm not saying these dudes are bad actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they don't. They're they're just. But I mean, they're all just they're playing such generic college guys that I just didn't I didn't care which one of them was which at, at some point in the movie. And it makes me think like that. There's there's a happy medium when I think of Revenge of the Nerds that I mentioned earlier. Like the characters in Revenge of the Nerds, they stick out from each other like sore yeah. thumbs. They are like cartoon characters are so over the top with their differences between like the nerdy Asian guy, the gay black guy, Booger, uh, Poindexter with the Coke bottle glasses and the wild hair. Like they, they are also uniquely visual as well as these different characters. And the, these were just such a bunch of regular looking dudes. And I really yeah. think that hurt, um, hurt me. So the uh, stuffy Omega house is best exemplified by the preppy uh, Greg Marmalade. He's constantly scheming about how to get rid of Delta or how to cause Delta's downfall. So much so that uh, he becomes his poor girlfriend, Mandy uh, Pepperidge, becomes a little bit sex starved. Mandy, turns out, was an ex-bedmate of Otter's as well, which kind of fuels some of the plot. Uh, The Omega House, along with cranky old Dean Wormer, have decided to work together to get Delta House's charter revoked. We also get the mayor of the town who's extorting money from the college to host a homecoming parade. Um, he's also very anti-Delta. And we've also got Niedermeyer, who is a member of Omega, but also uh, Flounder, who's an ROTC candidate. Um, he's his commanding officer. The mayor might have been superfluous, but I thought that the uh, the bad guys were, were really well-defined. Totally agree. Much better roster of bad guys. Marmal Art, which is a name that just made me laugh. Come on. How, you, how is his name Marmal Art? Uh, but, you know, he's got that generic preppy jock thing going. But the other two villains are really over the top. They're so good. Niedermeyer, mm-hmm. who, of course, is the dad from the Twisted Sister video, which is super cool watching him and re- no, you know, because I know the Twisted Sister video where he's screaming at his son. Yeah. And he's like, is that a Twisted Sister pin on your uniform? And uh, so that added yeah. extra uh, to this for me, getting to see him like that. And uh, and the Dean. Oh, I love the Dean. He was so evil. What a yeah. perfect evil Dean. A great bad guys in this movie, for sure. Marmalade, is he so obsessed with delta that he's impotent now is he gay or is he just one of these uber christian types like what are they saying i don't i couldn't get a sense i know that it came up in conversation but i couldn't get a sense of what his truth was you know yeah and i didn't either i he was he was my least favorite of the villains just and kind of like the the quote-unquote good guys not a super defined character for me Uh outside of you know i'm supposed to be in charge i'm the you know the rich blonde with the pretty blonde girlfriend but uh i I didn't pick up you know maybe he's gay i didn't get any sense of him other than um just your generic rich white boy who wants to hate the nerds 10 years later carrie always would have played him yeah good call (laughs) So we're following the day-to-day rivalry of the Deltas and the Omegas. 
Um, and we're following the, the characters in sort of their day-to-day goofiness and, and just to give broad strokes of who these guys are. So Otter's goal is basically to bed as many women as possible and to keep the house afloat. His past tryst with Mandy Pepperidge is a kind of a combination. It sets up some scenes where it's kind of a combination of like teasing and maybe hopefully rekindling something depending on the scene. I, I couldn't get a sense of what Otter was up to beyond just trying to get girls in the sack and keep his uh, frat afloat. Boone, you know, to placate his his girlfriend, they hang out with a pot-smoking professor played by uh, Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland, one of my absolute favorite actors. Uh, how awesome was he in this movie? So awesome and super close to when he did Invasion of the Body Snatchers to the point where he just looks like uh, Matt. What was his name? Matthew Brunell or something like that. Uh, the health inspector in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It, it could have just been him. It, they shouldn't have. Oh, my God. He could have just been the same character. there teaching health sciences or something because uh, that's totally something he would do, too. I don't think he has a lot of scruples. But, oh, shit, I, I wasn't super into the plot and following the plot of this movie. But I tell you what I was following and what i was interested in i was invested in because when he, she was when i saw that she was with him i was furious <laughs> i was so mad at her and mad at him like you fucking skeeve asshole and just like 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 poor fella i'm thinking on the other line like you're yeah. doing his best and this is how she's gonna treat you fuck you karen allen <laughs> Now it was the 70s and every woman had to get either her top or bottom out. There was pressure on Karen Allen to do it. She didn't want to do it. Donald Sutherland, seeing the way the wind was blowing, uh, said, well, if you get yours out, I'll get mine out. So that's why we see his rear end as well. I think there's something uh, and it's going to go on for a long time and it happened a long and I'm sure it still goes on to some degree, but it's pretty rotten that they were uh, telling Karen Allen that you got to show your ass in the movie yeah it, it adds nothing to the movie zero it's not a fucking fast times at ridgemont high movement moment with uh phoebe cates it's like half a second she didn't mm-hmm. want to do it why are you out here making her trying to do it and yeah. you know unfortunately and you know i'm not i, I won't be uh too left wing about it but it's it's that kind of uh shitty attitude that you see from a lot of characters in this film with regards yeah. to uh their treatment of women so uh, Pinto's trying to make the most of his college life, um, trying to hook up with a girl. He eventually hooks up with a girl from a downtown grocery store with a terrible secret. Poor Flounder, an ROTC candidate. He's dealing with the harsh bullying from his CEO and just Omega House in general. But he, he's, he's, he's supported immensely by his, his brothers, um, which was kind of a charming thing. I, I, in, in some ways, I found Flounder to be the weakest character of, of the bunch. Not weak as far as like... He was wimpy, weak as far as it was just it was more tropey than all the other characters. Yeah, he didn't need to, he didn't need to exist, really, I don't think, because any like funny, stupid fat guy stuff he's going to do, Belushi's going to have covered. And so, you know, you don't want to like so they're trying to they put him in this hat. They trying to make him a simpleton. I don't know. But I, I also don't believe that a simpleton goes to college. Yeah, I, I didn't like that character. I mean, he seemed OK. There was there was at one point I was just laughing at his face he had a stupid face on <laughs> and but uh yeah I, I didn't need him and I, I mean i like stephen first the actor i remember him from santa elsewhere as a kid and in one of my favorite movies when i was a kid that i i'm scared to rewatch because i'm afraid i won't like it is the dream team a uh, favorite of your father's if i recall Oh, yeah, my dad loves the Dream Team. I haven't seen it in a while either. So we really follow these guys through their you know, first few months of that year of college. Uh, we see a food fight, a road trip, homecoming parade, of course, a toga party that went on to inspire a slew of real-life toga parties and a thousand sitcom episodes. And then they, you know, coupled with them getting caught cheating on a test, uh, the house losing its charter, the individual members being expelled, fighting back. And then the film ends with a series of, uh, of epilogues of the more prominent characters. You know, this movie is a bunch of interlocking stories with a plot thread. And these are medium to short scenes involving many characters. And I think he, he does it very well. Landis and the editors, they're wisely jumping between a few short bits and characters rather than drawing them out. So like even the iconic food fight and the toga parties, I mean, it's set up comedy, get out. Um, and it moves the film along at a quick clip and, you know, it's maximizing laughs for, per minute. And in some ways, we're not seeing much boredom here. We're not seeing much sitting around doing nothing. 
And it's kind of making these characters a little more dynamic and at times more likable. Yeah, it does move along at a pretty good clip. It was never boring. I mean, it didn't help me really get to know these characters that I can barely mm. tell apart. But if I'm watching friggin' Animal House, I don't care if I just confused Boone and Pinto. Uh, no. Because you just you landed a good joke and I laughed. Yeah, uh, that's what I want to see. And the the big story is Omega versus Delta. You know yeah, that is exactly. Um, there's some real great bits in here that that were well staged or well directed, I suppose, well filmed. Everything with the horse was funny. The scene at the grocery store was extremely well done. The homecoming parade was uh, both technically impressive and, and fun, considering the low budget they had. I thought the comedy stuff was really good. Like he did a good job showing us the bigger stuff, the foolish stuff, you know, the toga party, the the stuff, the the big scene stuff with the horse running off with Niedermeyer. But also, I thought he was great at the you know close up stuff, the 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 more subtle, the stuff with the. Uh, and then the little tiny gags like the rubber gloves during the hand job. You know, it was a good mix of blatant and subtle, which the subtle is sadly missing from this this type of movie. Yeah, you're right. I never even I think it's a good sign because this is not I, I don't really think of especially again. And, and I'm not I mean, I'm babbling. I'm not trying to belittle the art form when I say this. Mm-hmm. But I really don't, when I'm watching a comedy, I really don't pay as much attention to the composition of the movie mm-hmm. uh, with, with little things like that. Because, again, because I'm, I'm, I'm so greedy. I'm just mm-hmm. looking for the laugh. Make me laugh, clown. Uh, so there's, <laughs> there's a lot of, but it's weird because I'm not saying that there's no, there's obviously inherent skill to it. But for some reason, with something like a drama or a thriller, you know, I'll watch it slowly and carefully. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll be absorbing nonsense that I probably shouldn't even be absorbing. Uh, But when I'm watching a movie like this, um, a lot of the the nuance of the craft slides by me. So some favorite scenes for me. Well, first off, anything Donald Sutherland was in um, and anything with a horse I got a big kick out of. Pinto finding out his new girlfriend's secret at just the absolute worst time. I loved Bluto in the cafeteria line. Um, but my favorite thing for many reasons was Baludo smashing the sensitive folk singer's guitar. <laughs> I have uh, nothing but appreciation for musicians and their work. Um, however, if you play a guitar and you walk into a room where people are talking and chatting, it is not your turn to open your case and drown all of that out with your version of whatever John Cougar Mellencamp song you happen to know. So Bluto smashing that guitar made me feel real nice. It's always it's always Jack and Diane. This has been a thing I've had an issue with since high school. Uh, last summer, my I had plans to go to an Airbnb, uh, like out you know one of these nice Airbnbs out in the woods yeah. with a couple of friends. I'm excited to get out of the city. My friend says, "Hey, do you mind if I uh, my buddy comes? He'll bring his guitar." I'm like, <laughs> I'm not going. And she's like, "Haha." I'm like, "No, I'm serious." If this guy comes, okay, but I am going, I have paid to go relax and enjoy this vacation. I will not abide a dude with a guitar on my vacation. <laughs> I'm singing fucking Don't Look Back in Anger or whatever Oasis song he knows. Uh, so I said, I'm not going. And she, yeah. she was like, I can't believe you're being like this. And I'm like, listen, I'm on my way out the door. You're supposed to be picking me up. You're not, all of a sudden you're like a dude with a guitar is coming. No way. I didn't sign up for that. I'm out. And so guess what? He didn't go. I did. I had a great time. I am 44 years old. And about a week and a half ago, I was at a party seeing friends for the first time. Some of them not since before COVID. And everyone, there were three distinct groups there, all of them chatting and having a great time. And some fella comes in. He plugged his guitar into the amp. All of us couldn't talk anymore. And I just said to my wife, I said, it's time to go. And somebody jokingly said, I hope it's not the guitarist. And I said, it absolutely is the guitarist. And we left. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and honestly, jam sessions, there are bars, there are garages, there are many places you can go to play your guitar. But it is not in the middle of a party when people are talking. If, if two people say, hey, did you bring your guitar? Count the number of people that didn't ask that question. (laughs) So, Matt, were there any favorite scenes for you that really jumped out? Um, 
I use some Bluto stuff. We'll talk about it a bit more in depth later, but you're certainly welcome to throw it in here. Uh, the scenes that I really enjoyed aren't going to be really much of a surprise. I kind of already touched on them uh, and because I liked the villains so much. So when Niedermeyer is really first losing his shit, when he's doing the shtick that he will do later in the Twisted Sister video, and he's like frothing at the mouth with that weird way of speaking he has. <laughs> And, you know, his lips just quivering. Um, and he's such a spitter. Like, oh, my God. He, he was so detestable and so over the top. I thought he was hilarious. So that uh, that scene really stood. He was a real hit in this movie for me. And anything with the evil Dean, especially when he first drops double secret probation, uh, which yes. I had no idea was from this movie because that's a joke that has lived on. You know, I, I've heard that joke in Futurama. Um, and oh my gosh, when, when the Dean is on screen, Elmer Bernstein, when the Dean is on screen, he has like this evil theme. <laughs> and the music <laughs> gets all menacing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the kind of like, cartoony stuff in the that i want in these comedies and, and niedermeyer if i'm not mistaken he borrowed some lines from animal house you are worthless and weak that that appears in does that not appear in the twisted sister video too yeah yeah and the, the part i mentioned before he's like is that a twisted sister pin on your uniform yeah uh, he does that uh, that bit in this movie too he was uh, an amazing character yeah. Probably the my uh, my dark horse favorite character of the movie. The script it's a very unconventional approach. Like nobody learns any real lessons. The bad guys lose, but not like in the way future movies will have them lose. Certain plot points are just kind of left dangling. There's some characters that are completely underdeveloped. We get some happy ending epilogues, but there's really no indication. Like the epilogues could have said anything. It's it's nothing to do with the events of how the movies lead into them. There's tons of extra characters that like a modern day writer would cut and merge. But despite all this, I still thought it was an excellent movie with tons of jokes. And and even though I say superfluous characters, I, I certainly preferred like Delta House being full of these men rather than just three guys living in the dorm and a bunch of extras. You know, there was a lot of jokes in this. And, and and a lot of characters that even though they kind of get muddled throughout, I thought they were introduced pretty organically. And um, there was some distinction and uh, differences, uh, kind of enough to warrant most of them being there. From a writing standpoint, I, I mean, I thought, and it's hard to tell what was changed by Landis once again into production. But as far as a, as a script, I thought despite its being kind of all over the place, it was still kind of neat and tidy and a little bow too. I guess I have really mixed feelings about it because I think a lot of it was really performance reliant. Gosh, everything between those interchangeable good guys was really flat with me. Uh, and I didn't mm -hmm. laugh at any one of them, I don't think. Uh, so I'll maybe speak a little more in my summation at the end. Mm -hmm. But I, I wish there, there I, I could have used more jokes. I, I really think it re relied on the actors a lot, which is fine. But there, there was some good stuff. And but again, it's it's the stuff uh, I'm discovering that it's the stuff I've already mentioned. Like the the dean's lines are hilarious. The way he's <laughs> yeah. written, fucking university dean. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's some things that are done really well, but then other parts I just find super boring. And mm -hmm. then there's the I guess the other third would be I think you're relying on the actors very heavily. So I mm. guess if I were to grade the writing of the film, I wouldn't get a very good one from you. So yeah, the cast, again, eclectic um, as far as experience and where they came from. Talented bunch. Most of them have gone on to many play many different characters in many different genres. Many of them are still working today. You know, some of these roles were written for very different performers. Um, and I didn't find anyone was particularly out of place. Uh, the ones that really jumped out for me beyond Belushi, of course, were uh, John Vernon as the Dean, Karen Allen, uh, Bruce McGillis as D-Day, and of course, Donald Sutherland. 
um, were sort of first among equals of my favorites. I thought the cast was fantastic. They were really good. Um, other than, and I'm sorry to keep picking on it, the interchangeable good guys uh, I, I didn't give a shit about. And I, I'm sure maybe on a second viewing, I mean, I, I watched the movie once. I watched it today. It didn't sink in with me. But everybody else I thought was great. I even thought Flounder was good casting. He, he like That guy looks ridiculous in that hat. It made me laugh to look at him. Uh, at the very least, uh, what's his face? The the preppy jock bad guy. Uh, I thought he uh, was Greg Mar- Marmalade. <laughs> yeah, or Marmalade, or whatever the frig your name is. Uh, how could I forget? Marmalade. Well, that's pretty easy. Anyway, Mr. Marmalade, uh, I thought was really well cast as well. And you know what? I before we get too far away from it, uh, I, I want to bring it up because I, I guess I kind of missed my uh, my segue into it earlier. I really hate that this movie is set in the past and that it's just not set in modern day. I hate, hate, hate it. So then I'll say no more for the moment. I also, I thought Mandy Pepperidge was fantastic as well. I thought she did a really good job. Which one was she? She was uh, Greg Marmalard's girlfriend. Oh, yeah, she was pretty good. All things considered, I'm pretty big on this movie, um, but there are some bad stuff. Uh, First and foremost... I got to say it, the modern audiences today are going to cringe at this movie. And a lot of the things that were abundant in this type of movie going right through to American Pie and beyond. Most of the women are like merely there for sexual device reasons. There's a ton of homophobic homophobic language. There's little diversity. The only black guys were band members or bar toughs. There was an Indian guy who, by very nature of being... A Sikh was sitting with the losers at the Omega house at the beginning. And none of the characters, we really never see any growth. Like there's no, nobody ever sees the error in their ways on the flip side. Like the lack of that kind of makes it more accurate to colleges. Even in the nineties, um, you did have your crew who were very quote unquote woke, but they were nowhere near frat houses. My college experience, you know, 97 through, 2006 i ran into way more otters and boons than uh you know your serious compassionate types (laughs) you know what i'm saying yeah a lot of the bad stuff that's in this the depiction of women the homophobia and this is no defense of it but it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better yeah that's unfortunately true since we're never going to watch it for this show let me a good example of what you just said there's that scene in Revenge of the Nerds where Lewis has a mask on and he finds the uh, the cheerleader and he, but he has her boyfriend's mask on. And so he has sex with her with the mm-hmm. mask on and she thinks it's her boyfriend, which is yeah. rape. And, uh, then he takes the mask off and he's like, <laughs> and he takes off and it's uh, everybody gets a good laugh. It's a uh, it's a great comedic effect, and you're like, oh, wait the fucking second. Uh, so that, that's uh, pretty dark. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the verbiage of the like – they said like you'll, when they were talking about uh, you'll never get a better chance. You'll never get a better chance. Yeah, like should I should I rape this girl? Like, well, you'll never oh, yeah. get a better chance. Like, I was like, whew. My goodness. That's when the uh, angel and the devil appear on Pinto's shoulders, right? Yeah, yeah, you'll never get a better chance, do it. Now, I don't mind that some of the plot points are just kind of left dangling and the movie just all of a sudden says, here's what happened to everyone. Um, but I could totally see people hating that. Yeah, if you're, I guess, depend, I didn't. I certainly didn't have any problem with it. I know what kind of movie I'm watching. You know, wrap it up, give me a little epilogue, I'm fine. I need to ask, I know you told me that you had gone to college with somebody who sort of modeled his life on his interpretation of john belushi's character in this movie yeah so to clarify i don't know i don't even remember the guy's real name so i'll speak of it openly there was this guy who just looked like belushi something i remembered from my own years in university was the giving out of these nicknames but those i mean those were pretty tame nicknames to the ones that i've seen dished out in the 90s i must say but anyway they get a look at this guy and they're like okay your nickname is belush and i get the feeling that this belush that has arrived in our dorm he has not come from a lot of social success if you know what i mean in the previous stage of his life so he really latches onto it and he's like yeah belush i'm belush and he's you know he starts drinking heavily and 
you know, eating large garlic fingers all by himself, turn into this big fat gross guy. And eventually, as happens in reality, you know, you get a month, a month and a half into the semester, people are kind of like simmering out, you know, you get into a routine. You got to do schoolwork a little, you're at school. Uh, but anyway, the, the party dies down a little. But for guys like Belush, if the party dies down, he dies down. So he was always trying to be like, oh, let's get drunk on Belush. And, oh. and we were like, yeah, you probably end up dead, too, the way you're going. Uh, but, oh, my God. And then, of course, so eventually the guy just ends up sitting alone in his room at 1230 at night watching Duckman and eating large yeah. pizzas to himself. And that's not Bluto. You know what I mean? That's no, not it's the character not. of Bluto. And then. I, I mean, I, my closest thing to dorm life was was I, I used to be in the military and, and seeing I was a little older when I joined and seeing these young kids sort of try to fit into certain pegs. And there were guys that tried to do the sort of Bluto thing. What I think they don't realize is that, well, that's not the breath of the character. And yeah, I'd like to now jump into just Belushi alone and, and his role as Bluto. I mean, Bluto is he's less of a plot driving character. Then he is like a reactor. He does have the party animal. True admiration for his frat brothers. Kind of stands up to bullies. The character, um, I think it's perfectly described as a mix between Harpo Marx and the Cookie Monster, which is how he played it. And I think that is a perfect mix. So we do have the the loud, at times obnoxious, uh, party boy. But we also have, uh, there's a well-meaning childness there. You know, he, he spends a bulk of the movie helping others with their individual issues or simply working on something solo. In, in a sense, this movie could exist without the character of Bluto and be a half-decent movie. He creates a little element that makes the most memorable segments of the film extra special. And I think Belushi was fantastic. Oh, my God. He was definitely the star of the movie. He knocks the character out of the park. It's like the, you know, it's the supporting character. That's the show stealer. You know, when I watched Kill Bill, uh, Gogo, the, the Japanese girl with the swinging ball, show stealer. Frank the Tank in old school, show stealer. You're not the main character. You're not driving the plot. But, you know, that's what that's what you come back for. That's what you want to see. That's what you talk about. I think the marketing and the nostalgia and the clip shows and all that sort of stuff have actually done a disservice to his performance because everything you see is like yelling dancing at the toga, his impression of a zit. But the real gold here is like the quiet, more un understated stuff. Like that scene, I know uh, I read that he's improvised it, uh, where he's taking all the food and putting it on his tray, or like his little reactions and interactions with his housemates, probably mostly Flounder and D-Day. Um, and when he's crossing the, uh, the campus at night, after they've stolen the horse, the way he was doing that had me in laugh, like just laughing my head off. Like the John Belushi or sorry, the Bluto I saw in this movie is far more likable than the Bluto I see in the clips. I mean, of course the peeping Tom stuff uh, through today's lens, well, through any lens is, is very unsettling, but I think it is somewhat tempered by the spirit of, of, of this move, like what this movie is and what it's supposed to be, you know, and again, there's going to be, much worse stuff in these copycat films that come out years later. I just thought this is the Belushi that people talk about and remember more so than what we've seen on Saturday Night Live to this point. Going into this um, uh, movie, I thought that he was going to be the stereotype that I thought he was. I thought it was going to be like the, the fat, crass, loud, quote unquote, good guy, but also kind of piece of shit, you know? And that is not the character that showed up at all. Sure that there, there is some, uh, you know, you got the party boy elements, but he is, uh, you know, you don't stick around college that long with a 0, 0.0 GPA and not have something up your sleeve. There, there, there's a cleverness to him that I didn't expect. Definitely more nuanced than I expected. And yeah, it, it just does not work without him. Well, you know what? It could have very easily, and this is not a knock at this particular performer, but it could have very easily turned into an Artie Lang character. Oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah, but the sad part is like it's the obnoxious side of the character that really survives and is what we're sort of inundated with, eh? It's true, and that's what's most copied. I mean, like you said, this this character is going to be uh, it's like what do they call that process? Flanderization, where they're yeah. just gonna 
take all the cliches and shove new characters uh down your throat so yeah and like in the 1979 i'm sure that character's in some shitty low budget movie and i know he's in a bunch of them in the 80s so no i was really impressed with john belushi in this and i was glad i was because uh i didn't want to think his whole legacy is smoking not that i'm saying his whole legacy but his major legacy was like smoke and mirrors but uh, no this was really an impressive performance so my question to you, Matt, Animal House, did you enjoy it as a movie? In a thumbs up, thumbs down world, was Animal House worth your while? Wow. Tough. Thumbs up, thumbs down world. Yeah. Yeah, I would give it a thumbs up, but a pretty tepid one. If we were ranking out of 10, I'm probably like in the 5.5 to, you know, 6, 5 to 6 somewhere. Uh, so a tepid thumbs up. Uh, because it's, it's, it's certainly not my kind of movie. I don't mm-hmm. like uh, wild college romps, per se. And that's not to say I, I don't like a good comedy. But, okay, let me clarify, because it's really a point I wanted to hit home again. I hate that this movie takes place in the past. Yes. I guarantee I like this movie at least two times more if this takes place in 1978. I kept forgetting what was said in 1962. I, I, it was not, that was not well communicated at all. Well, you know how they kept shoving it down my throat is that I had to keep listening to those shitty fucking doo-wop Louie Louie ass oh, yeah. songs. I yeah. hate that music. I have no, no like pleasant nostalgia for it. I don't like those old 50s doo-wop-y uh, <laughs> hits. They yeah drive me crazy and they were just played again and again and again i'm like holy shit this movie has so much more life and it's so much more fun if you know they start playing like the clash or blondie or something like really cool all of a sudden for your party scene instead of uh-huh. you know do it at the hop or whatever the hell they ended up listening to uh <laughs> and i really think it took it took away from the movie uh in a really huge way for me that bothered mm-hmm. me throughout yeah i i just couldn't uh i couldn't keep it in my head that it was it was set in 62 um and i don't know why it's such a such an unimportant element i think beyond the fact that maybe the writers were more familiar with dorms in an earlier time but they weren't that old i mean and things you know. never change that much. I mean, it's the no. same, you know, same as it ever was, same as when I went there, yeah, yeah. you know, seven, 25 years later, 20 years later, whatever. So I don't think it was a big change. Is it too conspiratorial to suggest that it might have just been about the music? Well, it would have been cheaper to, to license. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they were thinking of a simpler time that we can't see the difference now from this point in time. But, I mean, I look back at the 90s as a simpler time. I suppose every generation will in their own way. But, yeah. I mean, I look back at it as a simpler time because fucking 9-11 happened. That was a pretty big deal. That was a biggie, yeah. <laughs> kind of a big deal, 9-11, yeah. But was Watergate there, 9-11? You know what I mean? Yeah. That, I don't know, I mean, but, it, it, yeah. I get what you're saying. I, I am more uh, positive on this. This is a big thumbs up for me. I was it was a delight to watch it again. I saw so much more than I remember seeing the first time, and certainly watching it through, like paying extra close attention when uh, when Bluto was on screen, made it uh, probably more enjoyable. I was really pleased. I was also really pleased to talk to you about this tonight, Matt. For this episode. Yeah, we've teased this for a while. Um, I didn't know how it would turn out, if you and I would be further apart on this or what, but it seems like we both landed as close as we ever do. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I liked it. It was, certainly wasn't my favorite comedy of all time, not even top ten, but, you know, mm-hmm. it was fine. I'll never watch it again. And I probably will in another 18 years or so. Seems to be the tradition now. Um, <laughs> So um, our next episode, Matt, we are going to be watching a television special called The Things We Did Last Summer. It follows six of the cast members over their summer vacation between seasons three and four. That sounds fun. Gary Weiss, I believe, is the director for it all. All the cast, except for Jane, who I think just wanted a vacation. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see you in September. Really? Did she just check out? She's not involved at all? Not. It doesn't look like it, no. I mean, I haven't watched Hilarious. this before. 
Yeah, so we've got the Blues Brothers doing a concert. Uh, Bill Murray is uh, doing something with uh, baseball. Gilda Radner, I think, gives a tour of her apartment. Uh, Lorraine Newman goes on a, a tour to uh, a warm place, tropics somewhere. And uh, and Garrett Morris goes back to his old job. It's going to be an interesting uh, an interesting episode to watch. Yeah, looking forward to that. I like the the little offshoots. And then we're going to jump right into uh, season four with some really fun episodes. I'm really excited about season four and uh, can't be happier with the amount of people that sort of found us as we were putting season three out there. Season four is going to be great. I mean, at this this point, the show is what it is. It's a mega hit. It's uh, everybody knows it. Everybody has their favorite characters. Everybody wants to see them pop up again. And I mean, we should fucking enjoy it while it lasts because it's not going to last that much longer. Mm-hmm. And it's the success of Animal House that really changes the dynamic of season four. And that's another thing we're going to talk about because there's negotiations going on. There's changes going on. There's even some demands being made. Um, these young kids who sort of fell in on this comedy uh, extravaganza early on when nobody knew who they were are suddenly stars. And as much as anything, Animal House changes the game backstage. I can see why. All of a sudden you're a draw. You're drawing dimes, putting butts in seats. Yep. So Matt and I will be back in about a week, but until then we'll be making futile and stupid gestures here in SN Hell. <laughs>